please wear your headphones if you'd like to hear this in 3D. This is Chapter 1, Nightmare at Frankfurt Airport. On April 22nd this year, Canada banned direct flights from India because of the coronavirus pandemic. On May 1st, India recorded 400,000 new cases in a single day. The second wave was fueled by a new variant called Delta. Those were insanely difficult times. But the second wave did decline, and yet Canada continued to ban flights, and mostly only from India. Here's a clip from August from the Indian news channel Weon. Today, Canada has decided to extend the flight ban from India. Why? Virus concerns, they say. But what about the US, where cases are mounting? No restrictions there. Americans can travel to Canada. All they need is a proof of vaccination. But no such option has been given to Indians. Again, why? The ban continued for five months. So Indians had to find some creative routes to get to Canada. One of them was Anirudh, a student from Bangalore who lived through a version of the movie Terminal to get to his university. We won't share his last name for privacy reasons. He did his first year of college remotely, staying up all night for two semesters to attend classes. He'd had enough of it and was determined to get on campus for the new semester. And this was his last shot, for this year at least. Here's his story. I'm currently in my second year studying Bachelor of Business Studies. I did my schooling in Bangalore. I'm 19 years old. I'm a very extroverted kind of person. I, li I like playing a lot of sports. I surely don't like study. So me being me, I want to go as far as possible to experience the world and try to make it on my own. So Anirudh got into the University of Alberta. He got his visa in January and booked his flight for April 25th. But then Canada banned all direct flights just three days before that. And not just that, they refused to accept any RT-PCR tests from India. So the only way that Indians could get to Canada was to stop in a third country, do a test there, and then go on to Canada. Now, this is a drastic move because of the number of people it affects. More than a million. Indians are the largest immigrant community in Canada. That was really disappointing. So Indians began finding alternate routes to get to Canada. There were a bunch of countries. So I think the first one to open was Cairo, Egypt. So you take a flight to Egypt and you stay in Egypt for three days and get your RT-PCR done there. And from Egypt, you fly to Toronto. There was Mexico because Mexico, you have an on-arrival visa option. Doha, Doha, Serbia. You finish, get your RT-PCR done in Serbia and then from Serbia to Frankfurt and the route I came in is via Musket. I'm extremely lucky because mine was the last flight which actually came through Musket. And Ethiopia was having their elections or something and there was a lot of violence. So that was cancelled and there was a new variant concern in Serbia so that got shut down three days back. As Anirudh spoke, I was reminded of the Mediterranean refugee crisis and the routes that the refugees, asylum seekers and migrants engineered to get into Europe. These routes were always flickering on and off as well. Now, a lot of the routes that Anirudh mentioned cropped up after July, when cases declined, remember? So now, in case you're thinking this is okay, COVID is a unique circumstance, let me ask you this. Is COVID from India special somehow? Because by June, the Delta variant had spread to dozens of other countries where Canadians were allowing travel from. 
Or is it that Indians are more likely to cheat on their RT-PCR tests? And if so, isn't that stereotyping? An interesting point here. Indians and most people from the poor world need to do a battery of medical tests to go to Canada. A blood test, urine, eyesight, scan of your lungs to check for TB. People from rich countries don't have to do this. Anirudh gets his medical tests on May 23rd. And on June 16, I flew from Bangalore to Delhi, from Delhi to Muscat. I got my COVID test done in Muscat. The layover in Muscat was 16 hours. I got a negative result and I flew from Muscat to Frankfurt. In Germany, he gets in line to board the Air Canada flight to Toronto. I still remember just standing there and everybody's passport scans, there's no sound. And my passport, it goes I was like, oh, I think he's not scanned it properly or the machine is not working or something like that. He scans it again and there's a beep beep again. At the bottom of the visa, there is a barcode. So when they scan that on their machine, it said invalid. No, you can't get on the flight. We're not going into Canada. As simple as that. I was, I was, I was in shock. I took a minute or two to process the entire thing. The officer, because he had a big line behind me, he was very rude to me and he said, no, you just, you can't fly. I'm sorry, just move out of the line. Don't keep my line hold. I knew that the problem was with my medicals. They hadn't updated on their system yet. That basically means I was stranded in Frankfurt Airport. Due to COVID, Canada was not on the ball in processing visa applications. While immigration at any time is a hassle, it has become a special treat during the pandemic. Anirudh and his family scramble. If he goes back to India, it's unlikely he can make it to Canada for the August semester. It's a lot of money and a logistical nightmare. So they hire a lawyer in Toronto, call the university, and finally get an email address for Canadian Immigration Services and send them a desperate message. It's been two days since his journey began. And Anirudh is hanging out in Frankfurt Airport. He's hungry, tired, lugging bags from one terminal to another. The night passes. Chances look slim. So his parents book him on a return flight to Bangalore. He goes to the gate. I was sitting there, I was just putting my head down and I got a call from Amma and she said, just check your email immediately. I opened it and I just saw one sentence which said, we're sorry to have overlooked your medical which was retaken on 23rd. Your visa is now updated and valid. You may enter Canada. So I, at that point, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, what, what, what is this? I'm, it was like a movie. So he books the next flight to Toronto that will leave 24 hours later. On the 19th, I boarded that flight. I was so happy when she scanned my passport and there was no beeps. I flew finally from Frankfurt to Toronto. He gets a third COVID test after landing in Toronto and then goes to a government-appointed hotel for three days of mandatory quarantine, which costs him more than $1,000. When I saw the room, I was like, ah, oh, that's the bed. And I think I slept for like 13 or 14 hours straight and my body was like broken. Then a last flight to his university town and home. Overall, Anurit spent about a week getting to his destination. So we told you this story because, well, it's so unfair that people from one country are targeted. Remember, India's second COVID wave rapidly declined by the end of June. As of late September, it still has about 80 cases per million people living in cities, but that is lower than the rate in the U.S. But Americans can travel to Canada with a vaccine certificate 
and a PCR test. The Canadian measures are just a harsher shade of discrimination that almost all nations have imposed during COVID. Border control is an important public health measure, for sure. But did we ever imagine we would sacrifice so much civil liberty in so short a time? That we'd be okay with our governments tracking us, restricting our movement? We now have to prove we are not carriers of disease. These aren't abstract intellectual questions we're posing. We're talking about people's lives. Who gets to cross a border, board a plane, go to a restaurant? And who doesn't? Who is undesired? What race are they? What class? What caste? What nationality? And how did we get here, to this moment? Why these responses to a pandemic? This is episode four, Pandemics and Borders. Welcome to Scrolls and Leaves, a world history podcast featuring stories from the margins. We are in season one, Trade Winds, set in the Indian Ocean world. I'm Gayathri Vaidhanathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. We have a small request. We're an independent podcast. There's no studio or network backing us. So donations from listeners like you ensure we're compensated for our time and work. Please visit scrollsandleaves.com support for details on donating. And thank you. In this episode, we'll tell you the backstory of the world's responses to COVID-19. Amazingly, it began with a pandemic 200 years ago. It was the first truly global outbreak since the plague of the 14th century, which you might know as the Black Death. This disease changed everything. Our notions of of uh, trade, commerce, disease can already can almost read as a case study of modern pandemics. You know, it, it's a useful mirror to understand all subsequent modern pandemics by. The world changed when cholera broke out in Bengal in 1817. Chapter two, pandemic. Before the 1800s, there aren't many mentions of pandemics in Indian history books. There was smallpox, occasional bouts of mysterious fevers, but no mentions of big epidemics. That's because disease took time to spread. It had to sail over oceans, clamber through jungles, trek across deserts. It traveled at the speed of caravans, stopped for tea at remote outposts, and often the weather would change or the local scenery would go from valley to mountain and it would die out there all alone. It usually took ages, decades, even centuries to get around the world. So things are plodding along until... The 19th century. Steamships replace sailing ships, so people are able to get around quicker. Europeans colonize large parts of Asia and Africa. They go from traders to rulers of the subcontinent. Here's David Arnold, a renowned historian of South Asian medicine at Warwick University in the UK. India was particularly important, particularly with the coming of colonialism from the uh, very end of the 15th century onwards. And what colonialism does is to introduce a whole new range of factors to that existing epidemiological situation. It introduces much more maritime trade. It introduces a new population of Europeans who have their own diseases or their own disease susceptibilities. It enhances links with Eastern and Southern Africa. 
it increases contact with Southeast Asia through to China. These were great conditions for pandemic. Let's go back to 1817, to a town in Bengal in West India. This is nonfiction, embellished very lightly for color. It's been raining since January. The heat has been churning up the swamps and the vapor hangs heavy. Robert Teitler, a British surgeon in Jessore, has been expecting an outbreak. Still, he is unprepared for 19th August. A native doctor or Vedya knocks on his door. Something's wrong in the bazaar, the Vedya says. The bazaar is the Indian part of town. It's two miles long, next to Bhairab River. Across the river is a swamp. It's so congested, people are selling food from their doorways and Titler finds the smell unpleasant. The huts are narrow as can be, dark and damp inside. The Vedya takes Titler to a hut. A man is lying on a mat on the ground. He's middle-aged. His friends are pouring water into his mouth. Titer gets closer and sees his face is pale. His forehead beaded with sweat. His eyelids are half-closed. And Titer pulls him up and sees lifeless eyes. His body feels frigid. His pulse is weak. He was fine yesterday, the Vedya says. Then during the night, he collapsed in pain. He had diarrhea, vomiting, and he, he kept begging for water. Titler is shaken. This seems like cholera. The next day, the man dies. And within two days, 17 people die in the bazaar. That year in Calcutta, funeral pyres burned continuously at the ghats leading from Chitpore Road to the Hooghly River. When there's no more fuel for cremation, bodies are thrown into the river. And in time, there are so many floating corpses that they entangle with the shipping cables. The stench is unbearable and the magistrates pay Muslim men to clear the bodies. Cholera is unpredictable. Sometimes it claims an entire village and spares the next one. It disappears and then reappears months later. The only sure thing is that death, when it comes, is swift and painful. From Jashur, it marches on with British troops. It marches across the subcontinent to Jaffna in 1818. It hops on the frigate Topaz and sails to Penang, Singapore. Russia in 1823. Persia and Turkey in 1828, across the Baltic Sea into England and Ireland in 1831, and the Americas in 1833. Six waves of cholera shake the world by the end of the 19th century. Tens of millions of people die globally, at least 10 million in India alone. Chapter 3. Race. People don't know that cholera is transmitted by dirty water. They first think it's caused by toxic air. 
and the soils of India are emitting these noxious fumes of cholera. So Europeans named the disease Asiatic cholera, or Indian cholera, and that is a problem. Why? I mean, we just said cholera began in Jeshur. Well, for one, at the start, British troops were actually the main carriers of the disease around the world. But that was conveniently forgotten. And of course, it's racist to label a disease by its place of origin. I often joke with my students that it, I feel kinship with cholera because it's the most successful South Asian immigrant. That's Projit Mukherjee. He's a historian at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He doesn't like it when people say cholera is from India. There's a lot of problem with that narrative. Some experts claim cholera is from Bengal because there is an old Hindu goddess named Ola Devi that people pray to for protection. Or they point to early mentions in ancient Ayurvedic texts. That sounds like rather flimsy evidence. Exactly. Projit says the cholera goddess is actually a 19th century creation. And the Ayurveda texts, they only mention symptoms. Diarrhea, fatigue, dehydration. Um, but those can fit many diseases. What is more important is to think of why is there even this pressure to try and find a point zero and to call it Asiatic cholera and say it came from there. And that was very much to do with a lot of 19th century racism. And in fact, like if you look at the racism, it's not always to do with South Asia. If you look at cholera globally, and cholera in many ways is the quintessential global disease because it starts off at a period when global travel and contact is being intensified and speeded up, so it spreads very quickly, it appears global. But in every place you see it in, across the world, it often gets associated with other communities. We're across the ocean, on the tiny island that ruled the world. In London, the poor live in slums with open sewers. People even use water from there. It's 1853, there's been a cholera outbreak, and a 40-year-old doctor named John Snow is doing some fine detective work. He looks up the addresses of cholera victims and notes that they all live near a water pump on Broad Street in Soho. And when he gets that water tested, he finds it's contaminated. It's the first hint that cholera is caused by dirty water and not miasmas or toxic air. The idea takes a while to catch on. And once it does, people realize that they have to improve and protect their water supplies. From the 1850s onwards, Europeans invest heavily in the infrastructure in Paris, London, New York. They install piped water and sanitation, and they protect it carefully. But back in India, the British colonizers make very few improvements. In the 1850s, the British Raj, which is the name of the British government in India, imposes high taxes. The economic system collapses and there are massive famines. Starving farmers and laborers migrate to the slums and cities in droves, and they're eating very little and dying very young. In fact, India's death rate at this point is twice that in Britain. So the British officials in India fear they will catch diseases from Indians and they draw borders around themselves. They set up white towns where, you know, white people live. Oh, geez. White towns? Seriously? Yes. And the Indian quarters were called black towns. Here's Tharangani Sriraman. Uh, she's a historian at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. It was important uh, to ensure that there was not too much 
coming and going of Indians into the White Town, except, of course, to ensure that there's enough of menial services that are made available. And the next thing they did is improve the water and sanitation in the White Towns. Here's Pratik Chakrabarti. I work at the Center for History of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Manchester, UK. He says the British built a dual water system, one for Europeans and another one for Indians. So what we did is the river water is filtered and then passed on to certain households. There's another water supply, which is unfiltered water. So that unfiltered water went to the black city. So the citizens living in the black city collected water from the local ponds. The same water that is used for multiple purposes. And I'm not going into the details of it, but you can imagine what I mean by that. That's crazy. Does it work to stop cholera? Yeah, in the white towns, but not anywhere else. And how do the British justify their actions? Well, the British officials think that India's cholera is somehow unique. They simply say that cholera belongs to Indians. It's caused by, in air quotes, local influences. So there's no point fixing something that's broken beyond repair. Chapter 4. Surveillance. We're in 1865. Europe is reeling from the fourth cholera pandemic. This one began in the Ganges Delta, hitched a ride on Hajj pilgrims traveling from India to Mecca, and from there to Egypt and Europe. People are dying by the hundreds of thousands. France isn't very happy with the situation, so it organizes a massive scientific conference on sanitation. It's called the Third International Sanitary Conference. It's held in Constantinople, that's modern-day Istanbul, in 1866. And Western scientists and diplomats from 18 nations attend. The tone is pretty racist. Many times, they compare themselves to the Roman Empire, Christian crusaders, out to civilize and clean up the East. The conference is a marathon, It goes on for seven months and 13 days, 44 sessions. And one of the committees discusses the Indian problem. Oh, what's that? Well, here's how the Italian delegate put it. We have to stop that cursed traveler who lives in India, everyone knows it, from taking his trips. At least, we have to stop its progress as closely as possible to its departure point. He's talking about the Hajj pilgrims going to Mecca? Yes. The committee declares India's pilgrims are the cause of cholera epidemics and they should be monitored. Only the ones who can prove they don't have disease should be allowed near Europe. So pilgrimages become a major site where the state really starts intervening in unprecedented ways to control mobility. And so there are all kinds of ways in which we actually see in India throughout the 1800s what the world is going to see later of this gradual development of new powers of state intervention, which put the interest of stopping infection above and beyond any kind of respect for civil liberties. A year after the conference, the French are still pretty peeved and they keep pushing the Brits to control their wayward colony. And the British Raj finally takes some action. It's about time. (laughs) No, no, it doesn't fix water or anything important. Rather, they begin surveillance of Indian pilgrims to control their movement. 
Here's a story based on research by historian Catherine Pryor. It's 1867, one year after the Third Sanitation Conference. H.T. Robertson, a British official, is preparing for the Kumbh Mela in Hardwar. The spot is on the Ganges, where it exits the Himalayan foothills. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are expected in April. They will bathe in the river to rid themselves of bad karma. Robertson meticulously plans the sanitation. He charges a tax on the pilgrims and traders to pay for upgrades. He doesn't want a cholera outbreak on his watch. His men dig trench latrines near the main camp. It stinks. There's little privacy. And his men patrol the jungles and the riverbank to drive out anyone trying to relieve themselves there. Some women do not go to toilet for two or three days. Despite the measures, 19 people die of cholera. And as the pilgrims head back home, they leave a trail of disease. The Brits are frantic. They stop pilgrims at rail stations and bridges to examine them for symptoms. The pilgrims are made to bypass large towns. Some have to walk miles in the heat through heavy sand without any food or water. Some die from the journey. Officers also quarantine some pilgrims for two to five days before they can enter their hometown. If a person dies from cholera, they quickly burn his body and possessions. Despite all this, a quarter of a million Indians are infected within months. Half of them die. It's the first outbreak of this size at Hardwar. The pilgrims blame the interference of the Brits, and they are not wrong. An inquiry finds that Robertson men buried the excrement from the trench latrines in the porous riverbank right next to the Ganges. The ground must have impregnated with sewage. It must have contaminated the Ganges where the people were bathing. That's one account of the use of policing for public health reasons. The British Raj defines borders and enforces them. Borders between pilgrims and others. Towns and outside towns. Between the clean and unclean. Pilgrims become objects of surveillance. All this stuff that we think are what modern states do is actually developed in places like India. These are laboratories of modernity. Because in Europe, there are concerns about things like civil liberties, which they don't care about in the colonies. They can push people around no end. Here's another account of surveillance, this time of Muslim pilgrims going to Mecca. It's based on work by historian Saurabh Mishra. It's a story of what a Muslim pilgrim setting off for the Hajj in 1885 can expect to go through. I've been saving for Mecca for years. My journey began near Hyderabad and I travelled by rail and bullock carts to the big city, Bombay. I went straight to a Hajj broker. These men are swindlers, but I was careful. I bought a ticket. There was a departure date, but these ships don't leave until they are full. 
I stayed at a friend's stall near Thakurdwar and every day I went to the port to check on the ship. Before departure, I went to the medical camp where some men inspected me for disease. They doused my bag in steam and gave me papers. I also got a pilgrim passport. On departure day, the port was madness. Policemen were hitting people with their batons. The pilgrim swelled abroad on three gangways, not looking back. We were all dreaming of Mecca. The crowd carried me up to the ship, down a hatchway. I found a small space inside the ship. The steamship set off for Khamran Island, a barren land in the Red Sea, hell on earth, a quarantine station. I heard the Ottomans run it. I was exhausted from my month-long journey, from the stench of people and excrement and the lack of food. I was shoved into a dinghy and rowed to the island. Attendants grabbed me and steamed my luggage. They pushed me into a hut where I have to stay with 60 other pilgrims for 10 days. The heat is suffocating. I have only 11 square feet to myself. And I have to pay for this confinement, for the overpriced food. I am here, but I am afraid. If cholera occurs in this group, we will be trapped in Khamran for weeks. The disease will run through this crowd. I may even miss Mecca. Khamaran has a terrible reputation. One Indian who does the pilgrimage wrote this poem. Mid Jeddah and Aden way, the quarantine at Khamaran lay. The hajis of the Indian land are first tried on this sand. If one can save his life here, in going to Hajj, he has no fear. What does not die in ten days, Good luck he has in all his ways. Oh, for the sake of quarantine, thy God's prisoners all of us have been. Chapter 5 Borders So, maybe by now you're wondering, why bother our heads about some ancient outbreak when our house is burning right now? Well, here's why. Take airports. It's amazing to think that for much of human history, people mostly traveled as they pleased. But during cholera, Europeans began stringent and permanent border controls. Pilgrim passports, bills of health, vaccination certificates. Sound familiar? We know versions of them today as passports and visas. These documents restrict the movement of people from the developing world, even in non-pandemic years. And very often, the reason given for the restriction is disease. Here's an example. So Alison Bashford is a historian of medicine at the University of New South Wales, and she hosted a conference some time ago on medicine and borders in Sydney. She invited a bunch of people from developing nations, but she soon found that they kept dropping out. 
I can remember it was, first of all, it was someone from Afghanistan, then it was someone from Pakistan, and then it was someone from Chile, if I remember correctly. And then there started to be a Global South pattern of people who were pulling out of my global conference on called Medicine at the Border. And I thought, what, what, what is going on here? Is this something as mundane as um, funding, in which case I can try and fix that? It turned out that people from some parts of the world had to get medical tests done, proof they aren't diseased. The scholar from Afghanistan, for example, he had to get a TB test, and that was a hassle. The demographic of my conference ended up being almost all Europeans and North Americans. And here's another example of how our lives today are still defined by the cholera pandemic. Remember those racially charged international sanitary conferences? Those recommendations are still with us. They led to something called the International Health Regulations, created by the World Health Organization in 1969. These are legally binding rules that dictate how the 196 member nations of the WHO should act when there's a global health emergency. Oh, like COVID-19. Exactly. And in 2005, the WHO rewrote the regulations to make surveillance an even more central part of public health. That's according to Martin French. He's a sociologist and surveillance expert at Concordia University in Montreal. Many states, especially in so-called low-resource areas, would be better served by investing in more fundamental components of public health than they would by spending money on trying to create surveillance systems. He says his focus on surveillance can be seen as a way to contain infectious disease in poor areas, uh, giving wealthy states the capacity to quickly act to protect themselves by closing borders and so on. We could trace this critique and we could trace, in some senses, the containment logics of the international health regulations and global public health system to multiple origin points, but one of these origin points would certainly be European colonialism. So the events of the 19th century are the building blocks of our response to COVID-19, to Ebola before this, to Zika, SARS. And we've largely forgotten that our current international legal response to pandemics is built on problematic colonial assumptions about race that discriminates against the poor and the disenfranchised. And while we can't tell you whether there's a better system to be devised, that's above our pay grade, as they say, we've seen some troubling origins of our response. We are well into a world of COVID-19 vaccine certificates and negative COVID tests to get on planes, to attend music concerts. But what will happen now that the world is segregating along the lines of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated? The rich and the poor. And mostly white and mostly people of color. As for cholera, the main character of this story, it's still around. It cropped up in Yemen, Mozambique, Zimbabwe in 2018, Niger, Iraq, Pakistan, in Haiti, in pockets with unclean water, weak infrastructure, and poor governance. Thanks for listening. This was episode four, Pandemics and Borders. I'm Gayathri Vaidhanathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. There's another part to this story. In 1896, 
Two Indian freedom fighters embark on a plot to retaliate against border control measures. Listen to this bonus episode called Assassination on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash scrollsandleaves. Next time on Scrolls and Leaves, you'll hear about an indentured laborer from India who leaves to a British colony in search of a new life. Our sound designer is... Nikhil Nagaraj. The storyteller is... Sumit Kumar. You are listening to Scrolls and Leaves in collaboration with the Archives at the National Center for Biological Sciences. Our thanks to David Arnold, Alison Bashford, Prateek Chakraborty, Martin French, Sanjeev Jain, Projit Mukherjee, and Tarangini Sridharaman. Thank you to our episode sponsors, India Bioscience and DBT Wellcome Trust India Alliance. Visit scrollsandleaves.com for episode notes, extended interviews with our experts, and to discuss. We're listening. And of course, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and spread the word. Thanks for listening. 